Hello, everyone. Here at the Decision Lab, it is our mission to democratize access to behavioral science insights through research, analysis, and application. Since launching in 2014, we've become one of the leaders in this space and have worked with organizations such as the World Bank, the Skoll Foundation, and some of the largest financial institutions in Canada and the United States. My name is Jacob Rusenek. I'm a senior consultant at the Decision Lab, and I will be your host today. Prior to working at the Decision Lab, I've been part of a team that spearheaded early efforts to establish a behavioral science unit at the World Bank in Washington, D.C. It is during this period when I had the opportunity to work with today's guest, Zaina Afif. As our listeners know, applied behavioral science has been growing intensely in the last 10 to 15 years. What was once a field at the fringe of social science and public policy has inspired the startup of hundreds of nudge units around the world. Much of that growth, especially in the development sector, started with the behavioral economics team at the World Bank, a small team of economists and social scientists that has been growing steadily for the past three years, creating impact in dozens of developing countries. Today, we have the honor and privilege of interviewing Zaina Afif, who is a senior social scientist at the behavioral team of the World Bank, also called MBET. We want to speak with Zaina about the current state of behavioral science, especially in the development sector, and where she believes it will take us in the coming years. Zaina Afif is a senior social scientist with the Poverty and Equity Global Practice at the World Bank. She is currently working on applying behavioral insights to improve women's access to finance and jobs, reduce youth unemployment, reduce gender-based violence, promote social cohesion, and improve access to public services and programs. Prior to joining the team, Zaina provided operational communication and behavioral insights support to World Bank projects and has worked in countries such as Egypt, Indonesia, Iraq, Kuwait, Oman, and Yemen in the areas of taxes, social protection, social accountability, and citizen engagement. Zaina holds an MBA degree from George Washington University and a Master of Science in Behavioral Science from London School of Economics. Thank you so much for joining us, Zaina. We're honored to have you. Today, we would like to speak with you about how behavioral science is applied, especially in the development sector, and what trends you foresee in the coming future. But before jumping into that, I think a lot of people would love to first understand what the name of your unit, MBET, stands for, and what you're working on these days. What are some of the more exciting projects you currently work on? Can you walk our listeners through some of them? Sure. Thanks, Jacob. And it's a pleasure to be with you and the uh, listeners and share my experience working in behavioral science at the World Bank. So Embed stands for Mind Behavioral and Development Unit. And you'll have to talk to Renos and Vakis and uh, Varun Gari to find out how they came up with the name. But uh, what I like the most about it is it does a very good job illustrating what we do and how we work, which is we actually embed ourselves in World Bank uh, projects and as well with the government projects. So it does a good job capturing that. About example of my work, so I mostly work in Latin America and Caribbean and the Middle East, obviously being from the region, the Middle East, it's uh, the language helps a lot. Some of my projects are, examples of my project is uh, in Mexico. We worked closely with the World Bank Environment Team to understand what are the barriers rural women are facing to access grants that allows them to start or expand their micro-enterprises. At the beginning, it was more like a diagnostic study to outline kind of the difference between the structural, behavioral, social barriers that women are facing at every single step of through the process from hearing about the program, aspiring about it, following through, 
applying all the way to obtaining it. And through the study, which included a lot of field work in uh, Yucatan and uh, and Oaxaca, what we found, and Chapas actually, what we found is that uh, women face additional barriers than men, not just because of distance. Again, these are rural women living in the forest or, you know, secluded area, but also because they have additional responsibilities towards traditional gender roles. They also have lack the self-confidence. And also the most important thing, they actually don't hear about these programs because how these programs are promoted don't reach uh, women. So following the diagnostics, what we've done is we've designed an intervention, which we are currently testing in partnership with the Center for Research and Teaching in Economics, uh, called CIDE in Mexico, where we're trying to address the communication channels, the aspiration, as well as the commitment uh, process to help women hear about these opportunities all the way to apply, see themselves applying, apply, and also hopefully get the funding. And uh, so that's one illustration of an intervention which had exhaustive diagnostics before we actually designed the intervention. Another example is another pilot program we just finished in the Kurdistan region of Iraq and where we wanted to see what are the barriers women face to joining the private sector. And in the Middle East, there's a lot of talks about social norms prevent women to work, that there's people look down at women uh, working with mixed uh, areas, with mix, basically mixing with men. So we wanted to find out what's happening in the Kurdistan region. And what we did is uh, we did a small pilot, which was packed with activities. Not all of them were behavioral. So we reviewed the law because we wanted to see what were the legal barriers. But we also did a social norm study to better understand the beliefs and perception at the household level. And we tested two small interventions. One of them was a competition to incentivize companies to adopt family-friendly policies. So that includes maternity, providing maternity leave, providing equal uh, opportunity. So we had, uh, based on best practices, defined what family-friendly policy should be and uh, basically did a competition to make companies a little bit more aware about what is expected, but also incentivize them through social recognition to adopt these uh, family-friendly policies. We also did a very short phone coaching session with female job seekers to see basically if we can help them through the job search experience. So we are right now actually wrapping up the project and finalizing the report, and we hope to publish the findings uh, in the next couple of months. So these are just a couple of examples, but it just shows you that a lot of the work we're doing is looking into some of the sticky problems that uh, countries are dealing with or bank teams are dealing with, and that's kind of where we come in to see how we can leverage behavioral science to solve these uh, sticky issues. Super interesting. Thank you so much for sharing these examples with us, Zaina. I guess maybe one follow-up question I wanted to ask you is how this approach uh, potentially differs from the approach that the World Bank would have taken maybe before behavioral science was being streamlined into its operations. So I think one of the things that we bring in is uh, we just introduce a different process on how to look at projects. And actually, I can illustrate that with another example. So we worked with the disaster risk management team in Haiti, and they're designing a new project for the World Bank. And they had a lot of information through survey conducted before. They've had experience working in Haiti for many years working on disaster risk management, but they were still having issues with people actually responding to early warning systems and also going to the shelters. So we did a behavioral diagnostic study there, working closely with the team. And by basically what we started by doing is doing the desk research first. What do we know about disaster risk management, early warning systems? Because obviously us as behavioral scientists, we are not experts in a lot of these sectors we work in. So we, we needed, what do we need to know about these sectors? What do we know about the local context? And 
all of that information, of course, uh, working the team, the, the disaster risk management team has all that information, so it's very helpful. But we also started looking into, okay, what does the behavioral science literature tell us about risk behavior, about uh, why people respond to, how they basically respond to risk situations, especially when they are uncertain, such as like with uh, natural disasters. And uh, what uh, we did after we did the desk research, we conducted extensive field interviews and focus groups, and we were able to get a picture. And through that, we basically walk the team through the journey map of what the households typically go through from hearing about the early warning system all the way to accessing the shelters. So what are the different barriers through their journey that they experience? And what we were able to do is look at the problem, not just from the citizen point of view, but also what's happening with the different key players, such as the central government. What are some of the issues there that are not working that's basically feeding into this problem? And then we looked into the local government. What are some of the systems put in place there are not working well and why? And the problems we identified, again, they could be structural, they could be behavioral, they could be social. So we really don't know what we're looking for until we go there and we start doing our diagnostics and uh, and data collection. But I think what uh, what is different is that we just bring a, we kind of bring in a, a systematic approach to look at the problem. And we also help really narrow a lot more concretely what the behavioral issue we're trying to do. So a lot of times the projects are trying to, for example, to improve education outcome. Well, we want to go deeper. What is it? Is it that kids are not going to school? Is it that kids are not performing? Is it, a, you know, is it the repetition? Within the repetition, why is there higher repetition? Is it that they're not studying? So we really try to tackle very precise the actual behavior that uh, we are trying to change that can lead to the outcome that the project is trying to achieve. The World Bank Group has been uh, the first large multilateral finance institution that embraced behavioral science to the degree that it has. And you've been one of the first social scientists within this institution that decided to support the growth of the field. Can you tell our listeners what motivated you to embrace behavioral science and how you went about helping to streamline it across the institution? And with that also, what were some of the largest challenges you may have encountered throughout this journey and how did you uh, go about solving those? Before I got into the whole behavioral science field, I think it was four years ago, I was working with the governments on strategic communication. So basically what I did as I worked with uh, within the project of the World Bank on supporting the government and building the capacity on communicating on reforms, new programs, or even improving existing programs. And uh, when you talk about strategic communication, we're not just talking about outreach. We're talking about the whole process, which is from the partnerships, from internal uh, building the right partnerships, the internal communication, engaging with all the stakeholders, looking into the risks. So before you even decide what to do. And what I realized is after doing this for a few years is while people did want to communicate and increase awareness, when we started talking about changing behavior, communication just was not enough. You know, you can provide as much information as possible doesn't mean people will change their behavior. And I started researching to see basically what evidence is there around behavioral change interventions. And that's where I stumbled on the work of Dan Ariely, Richard Taylor, Cass Sunstein, and Daniel Kahneman. And um, after that, uh, you know, I pursued the master's in behavioral science at LSE. But really, I think I was lucky that I got into the field right when the bank was publishing the World Development Report 2015 on mind, behavior, and society. So there was a momentum and interest in the institution. And I happened to be working at that time for a senior director who was personally very much interested in the topic. And that also gave me the chance uh, to meet other people in the institution, such as Oscar Calvo-Gonzalo, Renos Fakis, uh, Varun Gauri, 
Anna Putero, many other people who have been doing this work at the bank for much longer time. And of course, Jacqueline Devine, who was at that time leading the World Bank Behavioral Change Community of Practice. So that kind of was my entry uh, to the behavioral science. And then after that, since I was already supporting project teams and had access to the projects and was already working with governments on improving communication, I used that entry point to start introducing the concepts of behavioral science and uh, to change behavior. I guess the second part of the question was, what were some of, if any, uh, the largest challenges that you've encountered throughout this journey? And how did you go about solving those? I might have to rely on your memory for that because I'm right now victim of the, hinds- uh, of the hindsight bias and I feel pretty much that there weren't as many challenges, but I'm sure there were. I think uh, like if I, if I have to pick one, I would say like any startup getting project leads on board to embed in behavioral science in their project was a bit of a challenge because it was a new concept. And it, even for me at that time, and we're talking 2015, 2016, I was also having a hard time, like, how do you explain it? What are the barriers of behavioral science versus psychology versus all the other areas that the bank has already been using in their projects? So this is not like the first time we leverage psychology and social psychology, anthropology in the bank projects. But I wanted to know, like, what was kind of the difference? How do we tell the story about behavioral science can do and what are the boundaries. So that part was for me personally a bit of a challenge, but uh, what kind of helped is being part of the team here, meeting with like-minded people and talking to other experts kind of helped, you know, in my head create a better understanding of what, where, how can behavioral science is different than just you know, leveraging psychology or anthropology within your project. What is the difference with behavioral science? And once it was clearer for me, then it was easier for me to be able to explain it to the project leads and government's counterparts to show them the benefits of using behavioral science. So I think that was mostly for me at the beginning, just being able to kind of know the narrative and be able to explain in a way that... uh, demonstrated the value of behavioral science versus just using psychology in a project or having a social psychologist in a project to improve the design of the of that project versus really looking into it through the behavioral science lens. And, and what I really liked working with the team here and as the, the work of the team was developing, we were developing as well our tools, our processes, and that helped a lot because that gave me the tools I needed to be able to embed behavioral science into the project. So I think these are probably some of the challenges. And uh, also, I think what what uh, kind of a challenge we did and how we w- I went around to solve it was getting buy-in from people. And basically, what I tried to focus on is going to the people who were already innovative or open-minded or had the mental bandwidth. Because you also have to keep in mind the project teams at the bank and the project leads are probably some of the busiest people here. They are tackling multiple projects. They are tackling multiple relationships, multiple teams, multiple management and countries sometimes. And, and it's a very intense work. And there's a lot of uncertainty when you talk about development because things can change very quickly in some of the countries we work in. So all of that, trying to get the attention of the project leads for them to be able to see the value and be willing to give the space for behavioral science was a challenge at the beginning. But I think um, I, I think I was lucky enough to work with enough of them that uh, took a chance on me and kind of gave me the space to explore, which uh, allowed me to dialogue with the governments and uh, demonstrate for them why this could be helpful for them, but also demonstrate to the project teams how behavioral science can improve the project design. So I think the one thing was like convincing people to do RCTs, convincing people to test really clever interventions. I didn't feel that was the best way to come in. The best way for me to to come into the project was telling them, 
them. Tell me your biggest problem and let's see if we can use behavioral science to solve it. I guess a lot of people are curious, you know, especially in the context of the World Bank and how behavior science has been embraced. I mean, there is probably this this underlying assumption in many people that uh, that the field in itself sometimes is maybe challenging a little bit, uh, or it's or, or certain sub aspects of the field are challenging, kind of the rational actor model that that a lot of the let's say more classic economists have been trained in. So I guess when I was asking you about the challenges, I, I also wonder if you um, if you've ever been running. Out against kind of fundamental kind of philosophical differences between the approach that the behavior science is advocating for and maybe the training that a lot of the World Bank uh, economists have been receiving. Now, I know that there's a handful of economists like the ones that you've mentioned who definitely embraced the field, but is there are there also people within the institution who kind of are maybe a bit more cynical about it or say this is really nothing new or even go as far as dismissing it because it doesn't necessarily fit their theoretical frameworks? That's uh, part one. One of my question, and, and building on that, how do you see behavioral science evolve further throughout the World Bank Group and client countries in the years to come? The World Bank is a huge institution, and I've been lucky where I haven't met anybody who didn't recognize the value and understood how different, uh, what basically, how behavioral science complements standard economics. I think for me, it was mostly bandwidth issues, that they have other more pressing issues that they need to deal with. That was more for me the barriers I faced. I think uh, you can definitely see at the World Bank an institution that's full of, full of economists, <laughs> who most of them studied standard economics. They actually embraced behavioral economics because we, the team sits with the poverty and equity global practice, which is pretty much where all of the poverty analytical, economic analytical work is taking place. This is basically we're sitting with what you call mostly economists of the World Bank looking things through the the economic analytical lens, which is very different than, for example, if you're looking at the people looking at health and looking at other sectors. So for me, it was actually a pleasant surprise. And I would have never bet the unit will end up in the poverty and equity global practice. I always thought it would end up being with the social development or with the research because these were more open or closer departments. So when, when the team ended up being here, this for me, demonstrated the commitment the institution had towards the the field. Now, the second question you had was about um, about uh, um, the future. Yes. How, how do you how do you see behavior science evolve further throughout the World Bank Group and client countries in the years to come? So the interesting thing is, like, we're a team of around ten people, and uh, but of course we have extended teams help working with us. I think what's interesting is we're all learning on the different approaches, and uh, so you have. A lot of some of our projects, we are replicating the tax compliance with different variations, not just relying on social norms. We're also doing like the growth mindset, um, Indonesia, South Asia, uh, South Africa, Indonesia. And I think it's being implemented in Macedonia. I just found out yesterday. So I think you're seeing some of the replication of these solutions that have already been vetted outside and within the bank. But also I think we're looking into now really embedding more behavioral science in the way the bank does business. So to give you an example, like the Haiti disaster risk management is a very good example where the project team approached us when they were still designing the project, which is like before it went to the board, before it was funded. It's basically early on. And ideally, that's really where would be great to see more of this happening, where a lot of the projects are designed 
incorporating a behavioral lens and that we're making it a lot more realistic based to the experiences or the expected experiences of the target groups. So for me, if you tell me, if you ask me about the future, I'd like to see a lot more of these projects, of course, where it makes sense because these behavioral diagnostics take time and cost money. So I think for me, like the value would be to see more improving the design of the projects. And in doing that, you also build the capacity of the project teams to understand the behavioral approach as well as the government. And and maybe in five years, 10 years, we won't need to even talk about a behavioral approach. The projects are automatically designed that way. So that's kind of what would be my what I hope to see in the future with behavioral science. And then you continue doing, of course, experiments where we can do experiments to test some of these solutions and then build on the literature that, that's right now growing in the field. So if I heard you correctly, you're, you're saying that um, one way of how this could evolve is that it doesn't it's not in a, in essence kind of a, an add on or, or, or almost like a separate approach, a new approach, but it, it becomes kind of like the way to do business, the way to do projects and things within the policymaking world. Right. Yeah. And you're seeing that in other countries, for example, the Netherlands, the water and infrastructure uh, ministry, they are already doing that. I mean, they designed, sorry, it's the Netherlands Ministry of Infrastructure and Water Management. They actually designed a huge program that had 350 measures. So imagine 350 activities to basically reduce the lays during rush hour. And they leveraged behavioral science in designing these. And some of them were actually tested and others were evaluated and some were not evaluated. So you're starting to see other countries doing that. And then another example is the UK, Department of Works and Pension. Also, they pretty much focus a lot more on behavioral analysis, behavioral diagnostics than just the evaluation. So you're starting to see a lot of the countries, especially like, you know, part one countries doing that in the UK, in Canada, in Australia. You're starting to see a lot more movement towards not just improving touch points with citizens or tweaking programs but to design the programs within a behavioral lens. Okay, so now I'd like to shift gears to talk about uh, the application of behavioral science and policymaking. So the World Bank Group has obviously a strong global reputation because it applies a rigorous academic approach or often academic approach to policymaking. So this is obviously something that can be very beneficial for client countries and governments that request the World Bank services, but it also comes with some challenges. So at times we hear that behavioral science is embraced by project leaders, whether within or, or outside of the World Bank and government counterparts because it provides fresh, new, and sometimes maybe in a in a way quicker or, or, or less complicated perspective than classic economic models have done in the past. But we also hear that units don't have the needed luxury of time and budgets to conduct complex randomized control trials every time, yet they still want to apply behavioral science in a rigorous manner to their projects. So what do you think, Zaina, are the biggest challenges for an organization looking to apply behavioral science in an empirical manner, and how can these be tackled? That's a very good question, and, and that's something we discuss also internally in the team, because You know, we're not a research institute. We are here to support development and support countries in investing in development and improving the lives of their people. So, you know, if you ask me what is the number one priority is not to conduct randomized controlled trials, but it's actually to design really good projects that can be as effective and efficient 
but then how do we know they are? And this is where I would say that, um, so, so when we do the diagnostics, for example, we come up with 10, 8 ideas. And some of these ideas could be automatically implemented and are not possible to conduct an RCT on. When you're doing, for example, an intervention for improving contact-based interventions in a, within areas where there is intergroup conflict, you cannot say, I'm going to choose this kid, but this other kid is going to go to another program, or I'm going to choose these cities. So sometimes it's very hard to conduct an RCT in some interventions, uh, but it doesn't mean we don't do them. We just try to find ways that we can evaluate its impact as much as possible, even though it may not meet the golden standard of RCTs. But then there are times where you could do an RCTs or you could, uh, instead of looking at it as an RCT, it's a phase, well, it's an RCT, but within a phase approach. So the whole thing is, is we tend as, you know, when I put my research, researcher hat on, evidence, I want to test this, I want to do an RCT, that's what I think about. But when you talk to clients, what they really want is to solve the problem. And a lot of times you can't tell them, I'm going to give this person this solution, but I'm not going to give it to the other person. For them, they see there's ethical issues there. So the idea is to work with them on where does it make sense to conduct an RCT, where it doesn't make sense, and uh, where we have to use other ways to evaluate the impact of the project to see if there's any difference, even though it may not meet the, basically the standard um, of uh, the golden standard. So, so this is basically what we've been tackling. And I, so it's not been, I don't, I don't really see it as a challenge. I just see it as more like a conversation because at the end of the day, it is expensive and time consuming to do randomized controlled trial. And when you are in the field, so this is not a controlled lab or controlled area, like also a lot of the countries part one, you have a lot of resources. A lot of these countries, you have implementation issues you haven't even thought about you're going to run into that can even affect the RCT. So there's a lot of other additional challenges that come into conducting an RCT in some of the develop- developing countries. So the idea is how do you design, when do you design it, how do you, can you use A-B testing, is that good enough to give us some information? And out of all of the proposed solutions, maybe we try to do an RCT for a few of them. But at the end of the day, the way I see my job is to kind of help bank teams and the clients to design more human-centered projects. And if I can uh, quantify it, if I can, and uh, I can evaluate it, great. But that's kind of, for me, a secondary. You may talk to my colleagues in the team, they may have a different response, but as someone who comes from operations, that's kind of my, my purpose of being here. And I, and I'd like to use as much as I can. RCTs where, it, where it's possible. And I want to switch gears and talk about another, um, I guess, critical um, topic within behavioral science, which, which is obviously the ethics of, of doing behavioral science. So um, as a nonprofit, we're particularly interested in the in the ethical dimension of nudging. And, you know, one compelling argument we've heard for why nudging is ethical is that choice architecture happens all the time, whether we think about it or not. So therefore, there's an ethical imperative to think more deeply and deliberately about how we're actually doing it. So that's a very interesting view, but it brings up further ethical questions. If nudging gives you a tool to be more deliberate and empirical in the way you affect people's decisions, how can we make sure that we do this in a way that is as aligned with people's interests as possible? Is the answer to create this course and let people decide where to be nudged? Or should we decide for them based on societal ideals, such as being healthy and prepared for retirement? I guess for me, the way I look at a lot of the ethical issues is, and that's kind of the, the, the test I take whenever we're designing intervention is if we told all the participants exactly what we were doing and why we were doing it, would we not do it? 
let me see if I can rephrase this better. If basically we were completely transparent with the participants or the, the, the target group of what the intervention is, what is its intention, would we still do the intervention? And if my answer is no, then for me, then there's an ethical issue here. But uh, if we can be transparent over the interventions to let people know why we're doing this and how we design this intervention as well. I'll use another example. We're doing this intervention in Baghdad in Iraq to help low socioeconomic status families keep their kids in school. And there's a conditional cash transfer that we're piloting and we wanted to with a behavioral intervention. So we surveyed the parents and what we found is parents wanted to send their kids to school. They wanted their kids to stay in school. They wanted their kids to, they had high aspirations for their kids. But the reality is the parents themselves barely finished primary school. When you look at the, com- the the community level, literacy is low and there's also a high dropout rate. So the likelihood for the kids to be able to stay beyond primary is, is low. So what we did, instead of trying to convince parents about why they should keep their kids to school, what we did is intervention actually focused on helping parents talk to their kids, explain to them how it's important to stay in school, what they're going to get out of it. So we we basically did this booklet that has growth mindset, grit, goal setting to help parents help their kids in basically um, staying stay in school, which includes, you know, doing well and uh, and and dealing with challenges and, and potentially failure because it's the reten- the repetition rate is at 50%. So, so this is where, like, you know, our intervention was not to, you know, our, our intervention there is help parents do what they want to do for their kids, which is to get them to, to stay in school uh, longer. So again, we tried or we try to find interventions that are more aligned with uh, where people are. And this is something that gets very tricky also when you start talking about social norms, because people think that you want to change the social norms. But uh, in some of the work we're doing in the Middle East, what we want to do is majority people believe that it's okay for women to work in the private sector. We want people to know that everybody else feels that way. But what we found is, for example, that uh, women were expected, 85% of working women were expected to be home before 5 p.m., you know, and we're not here to come and tell them women have to stay till after five o'clock and and men have to be more involved you know yes this is great but these are very strong beliefs and it's not our place to tell them they have to change but what we can do is make it easy for the families that want to be able to have work a little bit later than five have child care support have the support mechanism that allows them to work and then eventually if if this norm changes it changes but what we're not here is to basically say no women have to work till after 5 p.m and you have to men you have to change you know your role in the household and uh, play a more active role you know what what we want to do is we want to help society transform as it is transforming organically but maybe a little bit faster by highlighting some of the positive norms and and ensuring that there's a support system there to allow the individuals do what they need to do whether it is to for women to work and have childcare support whether it is to uh, facilitate the job search experience so they can actually find a job even though it may take eight months so we help them find a job and not give up you know, until they actually find the job. So that's kind of what we're doing. I know I'm not completely answering your questions, but but we look at our role and interventions in that way. We're not looking into changing the society. We're not looking into changing people's belief. We're, we're helping them by using behavioral science to be informed and facilitate for them to make the choice that they want to do. 
uh, and we make it easier. I actually like this approach of um, what you said in the very beginning of, of uh, having it uh, almost like a reality check is whether if you are transparent of, about your intervention and you feel like you can still go ahead, then, then that means that most likely there are no ethical issues. But if you couldn't do that, then most likely you would flag ethical issues. So it goes a bit to that discourse of having people themselves decide if these tools become available to them, whether they still would want that certain behavior change or not. So it's, it's in a bit letting not not having us, let's say the, the, the policymakers kind of make that decision for people, but having showing people ways of how things can change and make and having them themselves decide whether this is kind of ethically aligned or not. That actually takes me back to one of my first interviews that I conducted in this series. And I think it was David Halpin from the PIT who said that they even go as far as developing now these uh, crowdsourcing platforms before they make any policy uh, interventions where they actually kind of run a, a census, if you will, on a certain population sample to figure out whether, you know, that community wants this type of intervention or not. So so even it takes it even a step further in terms of um, really having the beneficiaries make that decision on, on whether this is ethically defendable or not. So very, very interesting perspectives. And that's great. That's great they're doing that. Right. So I want to talk to you now about just briefly about uh, career and behavior science, because I think a lot of our listeners are, you know, interested in this topic, but they don't necessarily know how to get into it. Right. So applied behavior science is becoming an increasingly appealing career choice for many especially those people who want to kind of sit at the intersection between various fields as well as between theory and application. However, for that very reason, it is a, it's a somewhat tough field to prepare well for. Many of our listeners have asked us how they can best prepare for the field. So with this in mind, what skills do you think an applied behavioral scientist will most likely need in the coming, say, five to 10 years? How can they best prepare for the field? And how would you also distinguish between a behavioral scientist who wants to work in development versus, for example, somebody who wants to join the private sector? So I hope the requirements would be the same, but for private sector versus uh, development, um, that's more my idealistic view, even though the incentives are different. But I'm hoping that uh, the private sector incentives would change a bit to support the society they're working with. And I'll, I'll give you an example in a bit about this. But let's talk about skills first. Social psychology, anthropology, design thinking, research skills. These are all very important skills to have. And you're going to have people who have more in-depth experience in one. You're going to have people coming from the economics background and they have very strong research skills. You have others that have, you know, really strong social psychology or anthropology uh, skills. What I would add to it is really strong communication skills and and one really is a important skill for me I would say empathy and I think for us behavioral scientists this is probably one of the most important skills that we need to have and our it's empathy and our ability to put ourselves in the shoes of the different audiences so we're not just talking about the citizen but putting our, ourselves in the shoes of the government client or the implementing agency of the actual people delivering the service of the actual the, the project team. So you have to think of all of the people involved through this project and put yourself in their shoes and understand what their experience is going to be like and what issues they're going to face. Because if, if you don't take in, that into consideration, you're going to have issues 
within your implementation unless everything is aligned perfectly because every single one of them has uh, challenges that they are facing, concerns that may be different. And uh, so so for me, I would say, you know, having really strong empathy skills is, is important for us to be successful in our work and all the other technical skills, of course. Um, and I'm sure the field is, is growing very fast with data science. You know, you have machine learning, IA, you have so many tools out there that can, you know, complement nicely um, the work. So all of these technical skills are very important, but I would also work on the soft skills. So that's often an area where people um, maybe have a bit of more struggle with, right? It's like, how do you, I mean, it's clear you can go and study economics, you can study psychology, anthropology, whatever you choose. And, and, and any of these fields can lead for you to a career in behavioral science. But how do you hone in? Do you have maybe some tips for our listeners how you can hone in on, you know, working on these soft skills like empathy or, you know, ability to relate or build, ability to build more of a trustful mm-hmm. environment? Um which maybe are not things that you can just learn from a school curriculum. I think, I mean, a lot of it, it goes about uh, self-awareness. You know, the more aware you are of yourself, the more aware you are of how you react to things, your ability to listen, listening skills are very important. So I think starting by yourself, we, we, we ourselves are biased. We ourselves have mental models and we also have huge blind spots. And I think just starting off from that point, knowing that, Every single one of us, even experts in the field, have blind spots. And uh, that is the first step to recognize that, you know, the way we see the world, the way we are interpreting things may just not be the way things are. And it's really just then that comes to listening and observing and delaying judgment or interpretation to whatever you are observing and whatever you are listening to until afterwards. Because a lot of times, again, when you are, you know, listening, you're judging, you're relying on system one and how you are interpreting the information. So really to listen without judgment and taking everything in first before starting to analyze and think through the, the interpretation, that's uh, the information that that would be kind of the first step. But a lot of it is around, I would say, self-awareness. The more you are aware of yourself and how you react to things, the more you can hone in your, your bias, uh, your understanding of your own biases, and you're really able to look at things from the different perspectives and not just from your point of view. Got it. Thank you. That sounds like a great, great uh, suggestions and great advice. So I wanted to, uh, now that we're coming uh, closer to Towards the end of our uh, recording today, I wanted to ask you about behavioral science, especially as it's shifting a bit more gears into the private sector recently. So the the recent trend of applying nudges to improve policies and decision-making processes started mainly in the public sector. Uh, so your behavioral team, Embed, was one of the first movers. And then we had quickly nudge units at other public multilaterals, such as the OECD or the United Nations. And then obviously also other governments, notably the US, Germany, Singapore, Peru, and others uh, who, who started building their own behavioral science units. So today, partly thanks to your efforts, a lot, if not most governments employ at least one or two behavioral scientists in their administration. So nudging or applied behavioral economics Economics seem to be best suited for affecting public policy. However, after observing the success of nudge units across governments, an increasing number of private sector companies are now also following suit and are building their own nudge units. It's actually happening in an extremely fast pace right now. So what is your take on the private sector's increased appetite in applying behavioral science in their businesses, also giving the ethical conversation that we had earlier? And where do you see behavioral science evolve, especially in the private sector in the years to come? First thing, just to clarify, I think that OECD, EU and, a lot, and UN and others 
we've all been thinking of behavioral science, I think, simultaneously. So thank you for the credit of us being among the first. But I think actually it was pretty much um, all these countries, a lot of these international organizations have started IDV as well, have started thinking and incorporating behavioral science in their work differently. So I think that uh, the nice thing with this field and and also the knowledge sharing among all these partners has been critical. I mean, we had had different sessions with OECD, different sessions with the EU, with uh, uh, different groups, uh, with the government, uh, uh, different government entities, and that knowledge sharing, which is something that I love about this field, is what's making this field even stronger. And uh, so, so I, I just wanted to make that clarifying point because I think I don't think we would have been where we are now if you hadn't had so much uh, uh, sharing among all of the different uh, organizations and, and leaders in this field because we all were able to learn from their experience and grow that way. So that's just one note about uh, where we came in within the whole field. Because uh, I, I, you may be familiar with the report we just published profiling 10 countries that have how they implemented behavioral science. So it's, yeah, the behavioral science around the world. So this this is, for example, a project that took three years before we actually finalized it. But we learned so much from having talked to EU and OECD and the different units. So BIT as well, IDs 42, um, Toronto, from Rothman. So we talked to multiple people that have kind of helped us decide and shape. And of course, that really has been really critical. So I just wanted to make that point because I think this agenda has been able to move forward in the public sector because of all of the openness, knowledge sharing between the different organizations and the governments. Now, to answer your question on the private sector, I have a different approach on that. Uh, I mean, not approach. I have a different view on this because I think that Private sector has been using a lot of the elements of behavioral science. When you look at the social marketing and uh, consumer research, they've been really thinking about this a lot, lot longer than we do because at the end of the line, uh, at the the end of the day, they have to sell products that people are going to be willing to buy. So they've actually been doing a lot of work there. So I don't think uh, it may not have been called behavioral science. It may have been called something else. And when you think at Google, Facebook, Uber, Amazon, all these big companies, I think you can definitely, their approach, you can see from their approach, a lot of the tactics and characteristics of what we call nudging and behavioral science today. So so I think this is really being used uh, regardless what the title is. So the question I think more is, do smaller businesses and middle-sized businesses start benefiting from such behavioral science? Because they may not be able to afford social marketing companies and uh, big companies, but or they may not have the resources but maybe the smaller and medium-sized companies would benefit from behavioral science because that way you are really focusing a lot more on the specific behaviors you're trying to address. And this is where for me, like you talk about ethics, it kind of becomes a bit an issue. Like uh, if you're a food company, your priority is the bottom line. Your priority is to sell as much product so and keeping basically your products cheap. So you, the use of sugar, the use of fructose, for example, is one of the best strategies you have. But that's the worst thing for people, especially with the rise of diabetes and then NCDs, non-communicable diseases. So how are we using behavioral science there? How can behavioral science help our, uh, you know, people are becoming more aware of the issues around the food. So is behavioral science is going to be used to increase the bottom line to sell more products or is it going to be used to see on how do we sell better products that are better for people but maybe a little bit more expensive or we have to price it higher because it's um, we can't sell it in the quantity we can to make a profit of it.
So this is the kind of things that I would like to see behavioral science moving towards, but I don't know how realistic it is when the private sector at the end of the day is driven by the bottom line. As we're coming towards the end of this chat, we would like to ask you what short to long-term future you envision for Embed and what types of projects your team is most excited about in the coming years? I'd like to see definitely Embed doing being literally embedded in the bank way of doing business and in the bank project. And uh, I'd like us to be tackling, continue to be tackling a lot more of the complex area issues, such as, you know, how to improve the lives of the displaced people, the host communities, when you think of all the things happening between Venezuela, the Middle East, uh, and Africa as well, when you look into the displacement issues, you know, how do you promote social cohesion? So these are kind of issues we'd like to see, you know, I'd like to see personally the bank doing more because this is where we can actually hopefully make a bigger impact with the support of the community. And um, really for me, like, you know, long-term goal, the day that we are out of business, it means that we've done our job because it means that uh, behavioral science is completely embedded with the way the bank does business. So that would be kind of my aspiration is uh, to be forced out of the out of the uh, the job market because uh, behavioral science has been fully embedded in the in the bank uh, um, in development, basically. Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, thank you for your time and all your insights today, uh, Zaina. Is there anything else you would like to let our listeners know before we wrap up? No, this is uh, very much appreciate this opportunity to talk to you and chat with you. And these were really excellent questions you had me think about. And now I need to do a little bit more reading on the private sector. My advice would be is continue learning, continue sharing, because I think as we all share what we are learning and not just the successful intervention, but also the interventions that are not working, this is how we can move this agenda forward. Thank you, Dana. The pleasure is definitely also on my end. This was a fantastic uh, and very, very insightful conversation. So I want to to thank you once again for your time and wish you and Embed all the best for 2019 and beyond. This was the seventh of a series of podcasts conducted by the Decision Lab with behavioral science experts working across various industries. We hope it provided some fresh and valuable insights to you about the current state of the field and upcoming trends. If you would like to receive our newsletter or simply want to get in touch with us or potentially have interest in being interviewed yourself for a podcast in this series, please visit us at www.thedecisionlab.com.